millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time To Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. I am obsessed with slumberkins. They're these collections of stuffed animals and loveys that come with books. And they're so much more than that. Slumberkins were developed by a therapist and an educator using research-based techniques to help teach children how to understand and support their feelings. So these are almost emotional intelligence teaching animals. My kids are just obsessed. I mean, they fight over all of these things so much. And each one comes with a book. And in the book, you do things like recite your feelings and uh, learn about different emotions. There's the caring crew of animals, the confidence crew. There's the resilience crew. It's really amazing. They have great gifts for newborn parents. And they're giving my listeners and followers Zibby 10, 10% off your first purchase. The code is Zibby 10. So go to slumberkins.com check it out. Your kids will love them. And you will love the fact that they help the kids fall asleep better. They create an activity that you can do with your kids, reading, reciting. They even have like digital books that you can do as activities with your kids. I am just such a huge fan of this brand and what it does for families and how it will help kids and also the fun that it brings into the household. So go to Slumberkins, code Zibby10 will get you 10% off your first purchase. Enjoy! Elena Dillon is the author of The Happiest Girl in the World, a novel. 
She's also the author of Mercy House, which is in development at CBS All Access for a television series. Her work has appeared in publications including Lit Hub, River Teeth, Slice Magazine, The Rumpus, and Bustle. She teaches creative writing and lives on the North Shore of Boston with her husband, son, and dog. And she has another memoir coming out very soon. So you'll listen to us talk about that. Welcome, Elena. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This is my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to discuss The Happiest Girl in the World, which is on such an important topic. And I was just so excited to read it and talk to you about it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for everything that you've done for authors. I love this podcast. I love your entire brand. I'm just so happy to be here. Oh, yay. Thank you. I like my brand. <laughs> I like can't help myself from starting new things. I, like, I know. I'm getting very distracted. All these newsletters. I'm like, what else is here? <laughs> Thanks for subscribing. Yeah, of course. Okay. Why don't you tell listeners a little about The Happiest Girl in the World and what inspired you to write this book? Sure. So The Happiest Girl in the World is about a gymnast who is training for the Olympics and all of the costs of driving yourself that hard and pursuing something at that level and who it affects. And of course, it's also about the culture of USA Gymnastics that we've all heard about. So that's part of the cost. It's it's about a girl who sacrifices her childhood, the toll it takes on her body, the stress it puts on her family, on her parents' marriage, on her twin brother, as well as on her best friend who they're kind of growing up in gymnastics together and her best friend is abused by a doctor. And because of the culture of USA Gymnastics that we've all kind of heard about and been horrified by, we know that there's this kind of the silence and this pressure to be obedient and to defer to the coaches and to the officials and to stay quiet about things. So the main character stays quiet and spends the rest of the novel punishing herself for it. So that's what the book is about. And it was inspired by, you know, the real events that we all know about. I started writing it in January, 2018 during the Larry Nassar trials, just because I kind of, I was maybe ashamed in a way that I had not even considered the lives of the athletes in any of the sports. I just kind of tuned into the Olympics every two years and was entertained by them. And of course, you know, there's, there's human beings behind those performances and if you're going to be pushing yourself that hard, there's going to be repercussions. And so I started asking myself a lot of questions about, you know, these organizations and how they're built and what their priorities are. And if they're really keeping their athletes and who are children often safe, as well as a bunch of other questions about, you know, what happens to people who get injured and what happens to people who don't make it and who have put everything into this dream and then miss it by a hair because so few do. So I just, you know, kind of did research and was exploring these questions. There was a lot though of like actual gymnastics. So as I was reading, I was like, you must be a gymnast or something, or you've been watching a lot of gymnastics. <laughs> I am not a gymnast. I can't do any gymnastics except maybe a cartwheel. But yes, I spent a lot of time researching and like I, I kind of got lost in a lot of gymnastics meets and the movements and was watching a lot of YouTube uh, like how-to videos. And there was a lot of, just because like, I wanted to you know, bring that physical sense because that's what they spend so much time on. Like they, they spend years, you know, perfecting these minute and a half routines and how many times do you do that over and over again? So the reader like should have that opportunity to live in those moments as well. And then because there's just like so much at stake in those movements, it's a good opportunity to bring like the emotional stakes into the air and like have the physical and the emotional meet. But I have to acknowledge 
that I hired an authenticity writer and a gymnast, Life Lawrence. She's the she was co-wrote Ali Raceman's memoir with her. So I was really lucky to to have her look it over to make sure that I was accurate because there was a lot of things that I just had no idea about that she was able to to let me know. Like for instance, I thought like a triple twist would be harder than a two and a half because the number is bigger. <laughs> and she was like, well, with a two and a half, you're landing blind. So that's actually a more difficult move. So just stuff like that, that I, I would never know on my own, she was able to support me with. And it was just a pleasure working with her. Well, well, I have to say, I felt like that was a big strength of the book because I felt literally like I was there, like rotating around the bars and my hands were holding, like you definitely created such a sense of, like being there, which I feel like the best books do. And I just, I loved that, that feeling, especially I have a daughter who used to compete on, you know, in gymnastics. And I was in the locker rooms with the other moms trying to figure out how to do the hair, the way you describe her mom doing. And obviously her mom got a lot better than I did. And I probably should have watched some YouTube videos about it, but I wasn't that invested in in my own success. (laughs) So I kind of got to know the culture a little bit of that whole world. So reading about it was super interesting for me, but of course not, I mean, I shouldn't say of course, but I only read about the abuse and all of that in the papers like you or wherever, obviously you did a lot more research than I did, but you know, having been in that world and then hearing about what happens, it's just it became so unthinkable to me. So I loved that there was even a book on this topic and that the way you handled it. So after all your research, like tell me a a little bit about how you shifted your perspective on the abuse that happened, as opposed to just consuming it in horror the way we all did. Once you heard more about it and learned in this deep dive you did in this world, did anything shift? And if so, what? So when when the Larry Nassar child broke and made headlines, I was actually finishing up Mercy House, my first book, which has to do with sexual assault as well. And that time in the Vatican. And I just, I couldn't help but see the parallels with, you know, the Catholic church, USA gymnastics, and then also Hollywood with the Me Too movements. Like they were all this kind of this culture that is holding welfare hostage, basically, and often on women, but just in general in vulnerable populations. So they have what these individuals want. And they are forcing them to be obedient and quiet and to to toe the line in order to to give it to them. So I was tuned into that already. And then the more that I researched about USA Gymnastics, the more I saw like the specific ways in which they applied that kind of principle. Like for instance, at the at the ranches, I, I found this memo that was posted by another parent of a gymnast that said, that instructed the girls if they had any trouble in the middle of the night to call Larry Nasser rather than one of their personal coaches. So just like funneling these girls to one particular person, you know, when they were training, like encouraging them to push through pain so that they like just endured and tolerated they, and they trained, they were trained to endure and tolerate quietly. And then the, like through documentaries and podcasts and, and firsthand accounts, just how like Larry was able to thrive because he allowed injured girls to return to the floor more quickly than some other doctors would. So it, it, he was a useful expert to have on hand because he, re, he he put the girls back into training. So that's one reason that he was able to stick around. So so yeah, just like when when you're when you're approaching this world with that in mind, like what are the ways in which these people kind of cre- fostered an environment in which he could exist for so long? 
you find them, you find all their different strategies and the reasons behind it, you know, just, just such that they can push for success and, and have these girls, you know, have to live with things that are unlivable. I know in the book, I felt like when they called the doctor and she was saying to her roommate, like, no, go and get our coach. And she was like, oh no, wait, we're supposed to call the doctor. And I was like, don't do it. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Those were such difficult scenes to live inside. Oh, oh my gosh. And like lifting up. Oh my God. Anyway. Yeah. Well, it was like a slow motion thing, especially right. in a book where you don't want to close your eyes. But right. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, when, when, when I was writing it, like you have to like, it's interesting to write something where you know that the reader will be built in with this knowledge already that the characters don't know. You know, it's like one of those moments mm-hmm. where like you have to keep that in mind. And that's like, so then the, the tension is there from the start, which is, and it's like very cringy, but it's, it's powerful too, because like, you can see how innocent the girls were when like, and, and, you know, the reader already has the knowledge of retrospect. I also thought it was really interesting in the book, how you profiled essentially a family and the effects on the family and all the costs associated and what you have to give up and all the things that this family had to forego in order to channel everything into the one girl's success. And then when something random happens, like she gets poison ivy before a meet, like what does that do to the family? Like how does the whole, and when two parents aren't necessarily on the same page. And I love how you have part of it from the mom's point of view too. Like this is where she's coming from and what does it do to her and all of that. So tell me about that decision to structure the book that way. So that was totally my editor. That was a really fun suggestion. When I submitted the manuscript, it was all from Sarah's point of view. And I loved being inside the mom's dialogue like she had just like a very distinct voice but when my editor read it that was her big feedback was is there a way that we can incorporate that point of view as well and with mercy house i had multiple uh, character point of view too and i had loved writing those chapters so as soon as my editor suggested that and i had already loved the mother's voice i was just so excited to get going with that and so i just went back to the manuscript and found some opportunities where it would be helpful to to get the other side that maybe we don't get from sarah and to just get to know the mother character even more and yeah that, that those were really fun and also very painful and it also it just makes you think about what it does to a child when the whole financial sort of ecosystem of a family is relying on a child's performance in a sport that should have just been fun. I mean, what does that do? Just that pressure alone. Forget about all the hor- horrific things that come ended up happening to Sarah and her, and her friend and everything. Just that pressure. What does that do? Right. And the longer you're in it, the higher the stakes become because, you know, like the more that they've sacrificed. And so you, like, there's just, it's quitting is you can't even consider it because it's, you've, you've been in it too long. I wonder what that ends up doing as you become a parent yourself, right? And then you have to go through and, I don't know, sort of the sins of the fathers lived on the, the youngers. I don't know. I wonder. I know, like the repercut, like, like, cause the mother's parents kind of dismissed her. So she wanted to kind of like move against that. And that's what, so that she was acting against the way that she'd been raised. And then yeah. how will, so how will Sarah move on? I, like at the end of the book, I'm able to, I give like a little insight into what she will be as a mother and having her own daughters and things. But yeah, it would be interesting to know what choices she makes and doesn't make based on how her mother treated her. You know, yeah, you're right. It's also like this kind of cycle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I once interviewed someone, John Bishop, John something Bishop, who said basically all of parenting is either a re- is a reaction to your own, to everything that has been before you, either you do what you liked or you go right against it. And like the real challenge is like literally learning to parent in a vacuum as opposed to reacting one way or the other. Right. And Uh, the stuff you don't even think about, like just yesterday when I was, my son is two, I was like doing our Easter ritual and I'm I'm putting out the candy in the morning. And my husband was like, oh, is that, you know, that's how, what your parents did. And I hadn't even thought about it, like making this trail of chocolate throughout the house. Like, of course that's what my parents did. And I like, I thought that's what everyone did, but yeah, you're, you're just like kind of baked in with stuff that, that resonates with you or stuff that you're trying to balance out. That's so sweet. Yeah. We always did like a birthday breakfast. Finally, my husband is like, why are we always having cake for breakfast? Like, doesn't everyone have cake for breakfast? He's like, no, I have cake for dinner. I don't know. I don't know why we had that tradition, but yes, makes you question. So tell me more about how you got into writing to begin with Mercy House, this book, like the whole, your whole writing trajectory. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Yes, I did. So I, from when I was very little, I was, you know, reading adult books. Like uh, when I went back and found my like fourth grade yearbook and I had written favorite book was Separate Beds, which was just like this big (laughs) romance novel that I think I had found of my mom's. And so I started writing my first book when I was 10. Yes. So I just always wanted to be a writer. I've always pursued it much more seriously after college. And that has, it's been a relentless pursuit since that time. And so it took about 10 years from after college to getting Mercy House published. And there were a bunch of books in between and a couple different agents and a lot of submissions, a lot of closed calls, a lot of rejections. And then, yeah, when I, I, I it was, I guess it was 2018 that I signed on with my agent and then it just it just rolled so quickly after after eight years of of nothing. It was just all of a sudden we had 
like interest from Hollywood. Like we were to kind of fielding phone calls from different producers and things. And I just couldn't believe it because like, sometimes it feels like it's just never going to happen. And it's, it's starting, like, it's embarrassing. People are like, how's the writing going? And you're like, it's still going, I'm still writing. And then, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm on the phone with Amy Schumer and I'm going to meet her in New York and it's just, it feels absurd and magical. And, and then, yeah, since, since then I have this book now coming and and I have another one coming in October and another one slated for next year. So it just like, once you find the right people, then like opportunity just begets opportunity. And I'm just like, so lucky. I mean, it's conceivable that like it could take, I don't know, like how, however long, if I hadn't submitted to my agent, then like who would have been maybe the next person, how long could it have taken? Like, would I just have given up at some point? Maybe, maybe not. But so, yeah, it seems like it, it just takes a lot of you know, some talent, a lot of hard work, but like also just tons of luck to find the right people at the right time. I'm sure you've also gotten so much better. Not that you weren't an amazing writer to begin with, but just think about 10 years of practice versus someone sending out their first draft of something. Oh, absolutely. All that time to get better. And unfortunately, I wish there were a way in the writing sort of universe where you could not feel like a total reject while you learn, right? Because the only way to learn is to try and fail. And that's like part of the process, but it doesn't feel like it's part of the process. It feels like a complete failure and like, you're never going to get there. Right. right? Malcolm Gladwell actually, I think calls 10 years, the magic number, right? Like that's usually how much it takes to get those. Is is it 40,000 hours of of practice before you become really good at something? And it's so true. Like, I I mean, definitely can't look at manuscripts that I wrote 10 years ago, but even if I'm flipping through mercy house, I'll find sentences that I'm like, Oh, I would have cleaned that up. You know, (laughs) (laughs) like you're constantly evolving and like coming up with a different style. And yeah. So uh, hopefully we just keep getting better and better. Wait, so with all your Hollywood discussions, where did that end up? So yeah, Mercy House is in the process of, it's in development as a television series. So as far as I know, they have written the the first episode and are like looking around for casting. So exciting. Yeah, I know. And what about, what are the next two books about? So I have a memoir coming out in October called My Body is a Big Fat Temple. And it's about my experience with pregnancy and early motherhood. Because when I became pregnant, I, I'm i just like, whenever I go through any experience, I, I look for books about it so that I can kind of know what to expect and then also feel less alone if I'm going through something, knowing that somebody else went through it. And there just wasn't a lot of material. There were some books, but a lot of them were like how-to books or non like nonfiction about the science of pregnancy. And there wasn't a lot of just narrative of the journey of going through it. And so I felt like I kind of was caught off guard by a lot of the experiences and how like primal it is and sometimes a little gruesome. And, you know, if you're feeling anxiety and, and then, yeah, like a, a lot of the experiences are just romanticized because we like to kind of keep motherhood as this ideal. So I wanted to approach it with a bit of more honesty and grit and humor. So yeah, that's coming out in October. And then I have another novel slated for next year about a a women Air Force service pilot during World War II and her daughter 60 years later and how being dismissed as a pilot after the war was over kind of affects the inheritance of of the girl like she's living with her mother's regret. So I guess, yeah, more of that cycle of, of parenting, like what, what <laughs> the experience of the mother and how that affects the, the motivations of the daughter. Wow. Those all sound great. I'm dying to read your memoir. That oh, thanks. So good. <laughs> I'll oh send gosh. you a copy. Please do. Please do. Yeah. Nothing really couldn't prepare you for pregnancy when your body is like taken over and all your old issues come up and you, I don't know, it's, 
And no one really talks about how difficult, maybe people are starting to more, but I, I didn't, I didn't feel like people had talked about like the, the loosening of your joints and like the carpal tunnel and like how your body just kind of implodes on itself. And like the cost of creating life is astronomical in a way. And there, yeah, there's this hush, like don't tell them or they won't want to do it. You know? like <laughs> Yeah. You're supposed to forget it, right? right. You, the mind forgets it. Like I had a, tw- I started with a twin pregnancy and that was oh, horrific. And I was on bed rest, honestly, most of the time, which I am like not a good candidate for bed rest. I like can't sit down most of the time, but, and parts of my body have never, they've never been the same since. Yes. You know? They don't <laughs> talk about that either. Like how you live with, with these effects forever. Yeah. Yeah. My, my little, I ended up having four kids and my little husband, my younger daughter the other day was like pointing to my stomach and she's like, and that's because of, you know, and she said, my older kids name is, I was like, yep. And that's okay. Because that's right. I'm so blessed that I have them, but yes, I have this like disgusting stomach because of it, but yeah, I'm, I'll take it. I that's know I- people talk about like, Oh, how many stretch marks do you have? And I'm like, I look like I laid face down on a towel sunbathing. Like I, my belly <laughs> is terry cloth. <laughs> like I can't count them. <laughs> My OB, actually, when I was pregnant, I was saying something because at the time I was like so concerned about my body. Not that I'm not, but I was just like racked with, I had spent all this time trying to lose weight and then I got pregnant, of course, forget it. And I remember my OB who had also had twins was like, I just want to warn you, like, it's not necessarily like, you're not going to necessarily look the way you did before. And she literally lifted up her shirt and showed me her stomach. And I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I was like, don't show me it. Like I can imagine being in that room so well, like it was yesterday. And of course, like, you know, I don't look so different, but I don't know. I felt like that was my warning. Like one woman to another, one mother to another in the privacy of, you know, an intimate doctor's office, just showing me like what's to come. Otherwise, how do you get this information? That's right. And like, and that's kind of what we're trained to do is like this cloak and dagger, like, like lift up the coat and, and reveal what's the truth. And like, I don't know why the discourse isn't just more straightforward. Like I'm a, just a, a much more direct person. If somebody asks me what it's like, I'm going to tell them. And so that's, yeah, that's what the book is about. Cause I was, I was looking for like, and, and the experience is so different for everybody. So you need to like collect all of these experiences, even just to piece together something that will be like what you recognize. So yeah. I think just like, we need to just have more stories so that people know that they're not alone because if they are feeling something and that's not something they've heard of. Like you really feel isolated and like you're an anomaly and that's a scary feeling. That's so true. Yeah. Although do I want to go back there? I don't know. <laughs> do I want to yeah. relive that, you know, once it's over, no, I will, it will be, I'm just joking. It will be so valuable to so many people. It's just like, once you get through it, you're like, okay, I made it like onto the next 8,000 hurdles. Like I do, but then of course you have this trail of memory, you know, following you around, like, like a tail, you know, behind you that, you know, should I turn around and look or should I just let it sort of whack the ground? Right. And like you said, your body's now a map of it too. Yes, exactly. Well, that's so exciting. So when do you write? What's your process like? So I write in the mornings. I'm really lucky to have, my husband has a flexible work schedule. So he, he's a professor. So he arranges all of his classes to be afternoon. And especially with the pandemic, we, you know, we don't have childcare. So I wake up and I have the morning shift every day. And then he has the afternoon shift. And then we both work after my son goes to bed and we both work weekends. So yeah, but I, but I write every day in the morning. That's my spot. 
Well, right here, like where we're doing our little gym. So I write in my bedroom. This is the basement where I'm holed away. There's like, it's more more quiet. But yeah, I write usually in my bedroom has like a little writing desk. But like lately, we, we just had to change the knob because I didn't have a lock on it. So my, my son has learned now to turn the knob. So now there's a locked door. And occasionally there's, he's like knocking on the door, like calling for me. But I just have a, a YouTube rain video that I put really loud. So it's, I'm, I write through, like through thunderstorms every day. Wow. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll think of you next time it rains. You're like, well, you know, you can turn off your YouTube today. You need to have like sensory like cues to work, right? Like I like having my coffee and like that smell and that, you know, like the motion of bringing it to my lips kind of puts me in the mood. And yeah, now that the rain kind of makes, puts me in the, the writing, the writing mindset. Wow. There is something so great about a rainy day. It's so interesting <laughs> that you like recreate it, that cozy <laughs> intimacy of it, right? Exactly. Uh, and then you can just close the laptop and it's gone. How great. That's right. Yeah. Go outside. So what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Ah, let's see. Well, a huge one for me is to have reading partners. So after I finish a manuscript, I find it really hard to get perspective on what needs to be changed. Like I have a sense that maybe it's not as strong as it can be, but I can't see it for myself. And so I need a a few opinions to point out things to me. And then I see if that resonates. So like my husband's actually a really good editor. So he he reads it over a couple of days and he's, and he's really good at marking it up. And then he tells me, and then we don't speak for a couple of days. And then, <laughs> and then I'm able to like agree that, okay, fine. Yes. And then my agent and my editor, and I have a few other friends from my MFA program that we still swap work. And I rely so heavily on that for the revision process. So, so yeah, that would be my recommendation is to, to get some readers that you trust. Like there's a few groups on, as for finding those people, there's a few groups on Facebook that I find really helpful for writers, like all those binders groups. Mm-hmm. If you if you just like post something that you need, you get so much response. That's how I found Allie Raceman's co-writer, Blythe Lawrence. I just posted something like, is there a, you know, a gymnastics expert out there who could help me? And, and she responded and like, you know, she's like the top of the top. It was just so fortunate. So that's one getting a good reading partner. And then just like practically, I like to stop my days mid scene so that when I begin the next day, I have that momentum and I'm not staring at like a blank page of a new chapter, even though it feels really satisfying to finish the scene and walk away. I find it really much easier the next day if I, if I like just already just jump in, um, you know, waist deep rather than trying to start from scratch. Do you finish the sentence or do you stop mid sentence? (laughs) I haven't tried that. Maybe I'll try that. No, but I I usually finish the sentence and then then begin a new paragraph, but in the same moment. (laughs) Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. The blank page is so intimidating. Sometimes when I'm trying to write something, I just put it in an email because I'm like, email is so non-threatening. I'm just going to like start it as an email. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Somehow like Word or Pages or the programs when it's just like big and there's a right. cursor. And formatting with cursor. Yeah. Right. I'm just like, I can't deal with that. I'm just going to pretend this is an email to a friend. I'll start it that way. <laughs> good idea. Yeah. Anyway, well, amazing. This is so great. And I I can't wait to read your memoir. And I'm so glad I got to read at least most of the happiest girl in the world. And I now I want to watch Mercy House when it comes out. <laughs> anyway, so much exciting stuff. And I'm just so glad our paths have crossed. And yes, thank you so much for having me. On all your stuff. I'm thank glad you so found your agent. <laughs> me too. Me too. And that's a blessing. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and best of luck. I hope we meet in person. Yeah. Thank Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Slumberkins, for sponsoring today's episode. Again, use code ZIBBY10 to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 